are finishing up our eight-week series on life's big questions. And today we're going to be answering the question, what is the best religion? Let's pretend for a moment that no one in this room was born into a particular faith practice. Let's pretend that we were all raised by wolves. As we entered into society, we would see that people were doing something very strange. They participated in religious activities. They worshipped an elevated but invisible being who had supernatural powers. They prayed to it, sang songs of adoration to it, gave money to it, tried to convince others to follow it, sometimes even by force, and they made life-altering decisions in accordance with the writings that were presumably coming from it. However, they didn't all worship the same invisible being. There were multiple options available to choose from. And so how would we, as we enter into society, decide which of the options was correct to follow, if any? Or maybe we should just take a bit from each of the religions, a kind of cornucopia of belief. Well, according to one independent non-religious study, there are about 4,300 religions in the world. And among these religions, we see that 75% of the worshipers participate in what are called the Big Five. Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, or Judaism. And as appealing as universalism sounds, which is the belief that all paths lead to, lead to God, each religion at its core claims exclusivity. It's only those that are on the fringe that dream about some kind of ecumenical approach. The closer you get to the original intent of the founder of a particular religion, the narrower the road becomes. And this morning I want to compare some of the teachings of the different religions and show why I believe that Christianity is the only true path to God. As you think about the Bible passage that Ryan uh, read a little bit earlier in Mark 14, you might wonder what the Last Supper has to do with selecting a religion. Well, I would argue that the Last Supper and what it represents is the key difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. I want us to walk through the main lessons here that Jesus teaches his followers and how those lessons answer our big question this morning. And so first of all, follow a religion whose founder serves the followers. During the week that's leading up here to the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, here at the Last Supper, uh, we have what's called Monday Thursday. We call that this in our church calendar. And this title comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means mandate or command, and has to do with the fact that Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and then commands them to serve one another in like fashion. A more culturally re relevant comparison would be if I went out after the service today and washed all of your cars. <laughs> That'd be the equivalent to what Jesus did in washing the disciples' feet. And so imagine Jesus out there washing your car. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? And I think this is why Peter refused to have his feet washed at first. Because he had seen Jesus in his earthly ministry. He had seen him heal the sick. He had seen him walking on water. 
He'd seen him raise the dead. He'd seen them, him, him uh, during the transfiguration. And so he knew that this was the Son of God and was embarrassed to see him stooping down on the floor to clean his dusty toes. And that's why Christianity is so different, because it's a religion of service. It's not some kind of power grab. It's a religion of light where the candle is not diminished if it lights another candle. It only grows brighter with each new disciple. Now, this is not to say that the goal of Christianity is much different than the other major religions. All of them have to do with finding peace and harmony and happiness in life. Buddhists try to achieve this through what they call the Eightfold Path. Hindus attempt to attain it through reincarnation. Jews do it through obedience to the law. And Muslims hope to find happiness through the five pillars. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 26, that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be the servant of all. And this seems so counterintuitive to the way our world works today. In society, we are told that happiness comes from amassing wealth and accomplishing goals. It comes from what we can get. And so to be a servant, or worse yet, a slave, is at the bottom of the preferred list. Why do you think the disciples were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, not who was the one who was going to serve the most? It's because our sin nature loves to be served. We don't want to serve, we want to be served. Galatians 5.17 tells us, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you don't do what you want to do. The idealistic notion of serving others is all around us, especially when we think about how we teach our children. We say things like, it's better to give than to receive. But in theory, do we really believe this? In practical day-to-day decisions, why do we resist serving and thinking of others before ourselves? It's the flesh at battle within us. But our founder, Jesus, showed us a better way. He showed us the way of service. Who among us has not felt a surge of great satisfaction when we stepped outside of our own desires and helped someone in need? That's the Spirit of God within you patting you on the back in that moment. Second, follow a religion that takes care of the sin problem. In other religions, there is a recognition that the world is full of problems. That's not different than Christianity. But the solution to those problems comes well short of an actual fix. They're all about doing stuff or learning lessons that will supposedly lift us to a place of enlightenment. As an example, listen how adherents of Buddhism find enlightenment by following the Eightfold Path. They need to have right views, right resolve, right speech, right livelihood, right conduct, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. (laughs) Wow, that's a lot to get right. God showed us in the Old Testament that this way would never work. 
Israel was an example of how following the law only leads to despair and hopelessness. And throughout their history, they were crying out for the Messiah to come because they saw this continual cycle. They would come back to the Lord, fall away, come back to the Lord. Really a microcosm of our own lives. And this is why Jesus declared to his disciples that it was the new covenant in his blood that they were celebrating. It would no longer be like the old sacrificial system where the blood of goats and lambs and bulls would be needed to be offered over and over again to atone for sins. Jesus came as a sacrifice once for all for the entire world. Think about how this is all connected with the Last Supper. Because before the original Passover in Egypt, they're in slavery. And the Lord told Moses that he wanted something very specific to happen in regard to this celebration. He wanted all the people of Israel to gather outside of the doors of their own households and to slaughter an unblemished lamb. And they were to observe this lamb five days beforehand to see if it was unblemished, to see if it was sick or whatever, before they slaughtered it. Now at this point, one would be naturally curious as to why they were commanded to slaughter this lamb on their doorstep and not go out into the desert or something and have a mutual sacrifice for the entire community. And so a bit of historical context helps us to understand what God was after. You see, the most common place for people to sacrifice was not in temples. It was typically on the threshold of their own doors. However, they were not sacrificing to Yahweh God. They were sacrificing to their household gods. If you've read the, New T the Old Testament, you saw that. Household gods. What was that? These were gods, supposedly, that were protecting and blessing their homes. And they would sacrifice on the threshold to prevent evil from coming into their homes. In this situation here, the evil that was going to be coming into the homes was the angel of death. So they were sacrificing, giving honor to God at their doorstep so that they would be passed over by the angel of death in this situation. And we see some amazing uh, pictures here in that Passover supper that pointed to Jesus. Because just as an unblemished lamb was observed for five days before it was slaughtered on the threshold, Jesus was observed by the Jewish leaders for five days. He came in on Palm Sunday, and for five days they watched him, they tested him to see if he was the Lamb of God, as he claimed to be. And so, there's a picture for the Jewish people. When the Passover lamb was slain, it was roasted on a crossbar over a fire and eaten by the family. Jesus' death on a crossbar was another fulfillment of that picture that the Jews had seen for centuries. In fact, in Jerusalem, people were sacrificing their lambs in that particular moment when Jesus was on the cross. The same day, the same hour... That was taking place. Hard to miss, right? 
And this became a witness to Jewish people who were converted after Jesus' resurrection. Do you see how the Jewish people were rehearsing the coming of Jesus for over 1,500 years? Christianity is the only religion that protects us from the angel of death, which brings us to our final point. Follow a religion that promises eternal life and a new kingdom. At one of the previous homes that we owned, uh, the tree on the boulevard had died before we bought the house. And so the city had come and dug it up, and there was just a blank spot there. And all the rest of the houses had these trees. And so I was like, you know, being the OCD guy I am, that's not right. we got to put a tree there, right? So I called the city. I said, hey, is it okay if I buy my own tree, if I plant this, you know, this tree here? And they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So we're going to buy this blaze maple. But being the cheapskate that I am, I decided to buy it from some place in Kentucky that sends you trees in the mail, <laughs> you know? I was thinking, this will be great. It'll just show up at the thing, and I'll just put it in. don't have to dirty up my car. It's only, you know, 20 bucks. So I got this thing, and I opened the box, and it was like a stick with a couple of little twigs sticking out of it and a little tiny puff of root on the bottom. And I was like, I think I got ripped off here. But the brochure they sent along with the tree said this, you may think that your tree looks dead. Don't worry, it's not. It's dormant, and if planted correctly, it will come to life in the spring and grow into a fully mature tree in the years ahead. And so as I looked at my newly planted maple, I couldn't help but think of Christians at the end of their lives, lying in caskets. They didn't look like much. They didn't look very noteworthy. They looked about as dead as that stick in the box that I planted. But just like that sapling, their funeral was not the end of the story. Because sure enough, I planted this thing, and it started sprouting. And it started growing. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 15 describes the process. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into that plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of weed or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it a new body that he wants it to have. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. In Matthew 26, 29, which is the parallel passage to our Mark text here, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So from the day that he had that last supper with them until the present, he has not tasted of the fruit of the vine. But you're like, well, what's the big deal about that, right? Well, that's the Lord's Supper. We are remembering, looking forward to that, this event where we will eat and drink with him in the new kingdom. It's described in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 7. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Many religions teach that the greatest state that you can achieve spiritually is a state of nothingness. Hindus say that the only way to achieve happiness is if you're freed from all earthly desires. The only way I can be happy is if I desire nothing, because then I can never be disappointed. Buddhists want to achieve a state called nirvana. This is a state where you have no desire or self-realization. You don't even know you're an individual in nirvana. You're just absorbed into the great universe. The Bible tells us that our Father in Heaven longs to fulfill our greatest desires. And in fact, He's going to give us so much more than we can ever imagine. We'll get to rule and reign on a new earth. We'll be more human and more ourselves than we ever were. Because we'll be what we were created to be. Individuals in a family. Imagine the scene that took place at the gates of heaven back in June when Don Carter passed away. He was entering through the pearly gates into nothingness. No. That's not what he was looking forward to. Nothingness. He entered into the great joy of his Lord into millions of people celebrating, individuals that he knew some of. When a person dies, it's interesting what will trigger memories of that person for me. For me, the memory I have of Don is he would come sometimes half an hour early, and he would sit right in the fifth row there, right on the aisle. That was his thing. He loved to be here early. And so whenever I see somebody coming in here early, I think of Don. I think of how we miss him. We remember him. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He wanted us to remember him. We wanted us to remember him when we come to the Lord's Supper. Because he gave us a picture here. A picture of why Christianity is the answer. The only answer to all of these things that we are longing for and looking for. We see the love of Christ displayed for the world to see. And so when people ask you, why are you a Christian? Aren't all roads leading to God? You can tell them that our founder said no, they're not. They're fulfilled in me, not all of these other things. And you can trust these things. John, one of the disciples that Jesus loved so much, said in his epistle in 1 John, I write these things to you, little children, that you might know you have eternal life. Not that you might wonder if you have eternal life. You can know because of the things that have been written here that God loves you and has made a way back to the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have 
sent your son to die for our sins. That we might find a way back. That we might know, not wonder, but know that you have accepted us because of the righteousness of Christ. Given us something that we don't deserve. And we look forward to that day of reunion, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will celebrate with all who have gone before. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time the ushers will come to receive the offering. Let's take a moment and pray for that blessing. Father God, we thank you for the way you've provided for us. And Lord, you told us to give generously, without compulsion. And so Lord, I pray that you would bless this giving of your people right now to your work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.